The rest of us, we're going to be continuing in a study we're doing, which we've been walking through the book of Exodus. It is called The Great Escape, The Great Escape, as we've walked with the Israelites out of Egypt and walking with Moses and with God. So last week in the seventh part of our message, the commandments of God, we looked at the tenth commandment regarding coveting, okay? This is the coveting of the possessions of others. As we work through the scripture, we compared the natural discontent that the humanity struggles with in the material world. We're always discontent in the world. We're looking at other peoples. We also compared that to the dangerous spiritual contentment that plagues the Christianity of today. God intends for us to be satisfied materially, but never wants us to be satisfied spiritually. We should always be striving for more. This week, as we continue in the book of Exodus and finish verse number, chapter number 20, we'll see the Israelites' fearful reaction to hearing the voice of God directed to them for the very first time. As he gave the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai, the people were shaken to their core in reaction to this experience. They will then petition Moses to act as a middleman for them between them and God. And now let's jump into this as we look at this message, which is called the mediator. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for today. And I thank you for the opportunity to bring the message. God, I know that I've asked you and prayed through the week for you to speak to me. And Lord, I know that you have. You've spoken to me. And I ask now, Lord, you would speak through me, that the words that I would share not be the ones that I would choose, but the very ones that you would give me. Pray, God, that today we will have ears to hear. Lord, help us to hear from you what you have for us. And Lord, help us not only be hearers, but help us to be doers of your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right. To get us caught up of kind of where we were, because we spent several weeks going through the specific Ten Commandments, and to refresh our memories, we're going to look back at Exodus 19, which is kind of the, the, the preface as we walk up to this point. Exodus 19, verses 16 through 19 says this, And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount, and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud, so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. So the, the Israelites are overwhelmed by what they've just witnessed. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp and to meet with God, and they stood at the nether part of the mountain. So they stood far away. And the Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke. It was burning because the Lord descended upon it in fire and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace and the whole mount quaked greatly. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake and God answered him by a voice. God speaks. So as the people stood in awe of what they've just seen, the mountain was burning. There were flashes, lightning, thunder, the ground is shaking, the trumpet sounds, and then they have received the Ten Commandments, which we just finished, okay? They've heard the voice of God with their own ears, and this is an unprecedented event for these people. This is something that Moses had experienced, but the people had not experienced, not like this, where he's addressing them. So this is the first time, and also the last time, that this is going to happen for 1,500 years. It's going to be these people, Israelites, are not going to hear from God directly. It won't be until Jesus Christ arrives. It won't be actually until his baptism in the Jordan River that there's going to be a public situation where God's going to speak. Until then, he's going to use a human surrogate. So this public form of communication is going to take place, like I said, at the Jordan River. And it's in Luke 3.22. It says, And the Holy Ghost descended into a bodily shape like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee am I well pleased. We see it here in Luke, but it's also listed in Matthew and in Mark. Notice in this situation that all three, this is a very unusual situation, all three parts of the Trinity are present on this occasion. I can't think of another instance where it takes place like this. Almost as if God was establishing a precedence for baptism. And this is interesting. 
Perhaps this has something to do with the three persons of the Godhead. Look at what Jesus' instructions for baptism were when he left in Matthew 28, 19. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father who was present, the Son who was present, and the Holy Ghost which was present. Would you look at that? As if God gave us a literal example through Jesus' baptism, a picture of his expectation for what we should do. But that's a side point. Let's get back to Mount Sinai. Okay? So now, awe-inspiring. The people are standing there. They're overwhelmed. And this would have been two things. It would have been awe-inspiring because it was like, wow, look at this. Also at the same time, because these people, we know what the Bible calls stiff-necked. They're stubborn. They're rebellious. It was at the same time terrifying to them. They were very, very, very fearful in this instance. Okay? Verse number 18, as, Jesus, as God has given the Ten Commandments and he's just stopped speaking. Verse 18, and all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. The sight of everything that they've just witnessed, right? This is the first time that God appears in this form with the, the lightning and the thunder and the shaking and all this stuff. But guess what? It won't be the last time. This is an interesting point. Revelations 8, 5. It says, and the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and cast it into the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. So in this passage, what we're dealing with here in the book of Revelations, we're actually in the midst of the tribulation period. This is a point in time, right as this is going down, God is bringing judgment or getting prepared to bring judgment upon the earth. And what's also interesting and not by coincidence is the very next thing that happens in the book of Revelation is those seven angels that stand with their seven trumpets. Notice in when the occurrence that we had here in, in Exodus, that it was all that sound, and then there was trumpet sounded. Well, guess what? In the book of Revelations, the exact same thing is going to happen. The trumpets will begin to sound, and judgment is going to start to rain down upon the earth. In the first display, what was God doing in that very first display when he shows up like that? He's establishing the law. He's establishing the law. The law is the standard that God will judge humanity by. So the first time he shows up, he gives the law and establishes the law. The second time he shows up, guess what it's time for? judgment. He's now going to judge them by that same law. Revelations eleven nineteen says this, and the temple of God was opened in heaven and there was a scene in his temple, the ark of his testament, and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and earthquake and great hail. So we see this almost as if they're like bookends for humanity. He establishes the law and then we see here that he's fulfilling it through the judgment. Now, when we look at our lives, right, we don't want to, some of us don't want to realize that we're accountable. Right? No one wants to answer to anybody, realistically. Think about it. Who has the desire to answer to somebody? We love just to be, <laughs> do things what we want to do and not have to worry about it, right? But unfortunately, we are accountable to God. By our nature, it's our accountability, our desire not to be accountable. But though we look at this and we can pretend and act and live our lives as if we are not accountable, we are, in fact, accountable to God. Because nothing slips outside of God's view. Hebrews 4, verses 12 through 13 says this. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Nothing escapes. But I want us to focus in this verse in that part where it says the word of God. Okay? The word of God. That's important because if we go to John 1.1, 1, 1, John 1.1 1, 1 tells us a little bit more qualifier on that word. In the beginning, verse John 1, John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, okay? So we see the Word was God. Now, if we go to verse 14 in Revelation, or in John 1, 1, 14, it says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, 
And we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Son, full of grace and truth. So when we look at the word in that aspect, who is that when it talks about the word becoming flesh? Jesus Christ, right? So taking that mindset, and let's go back into Hebrews 4, and let's apply it to verse number 14, right? Or in, yeah, in verse number 14, and it says, and the word was made flesh and dwelt, no, 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 where I'm at, yeah. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. I'm missing a verse. For, no, 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 not right here. Verse number 13, Hebrews 13, it says, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. Notice that? But all things are naked and opened under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So what it's saying is like, bottom line is God, the Lord, sees everything. Everything is naked before him. Everything is open before him. doesn't matter what we think, what we do, what we act. We can hide it from anybody we want to in the world. But guess what? God sees it and he holds us accountable for it. He sees it. And the thing is, God's desire is not to hurt us. God's desire is not to control us. God's desire is to help us to be the best that we can be. That's the heart of God. The heart of God is restoration. The heart of God is love. And see, understanding, yet understanding this, many times, just like the Israelites, guess what we do? We distance ourselves from God. God spoke to them directly. He gave them an opportunity to hear from him directly. And what are they going to do? They are going to separate themselves from it. Remember what it said in that verse back there. And it said in that verse 18, it says, And all the people that were in thunder, and it says, And when they saw it, they removed and stood afar off. They heard God's voice, and they chose to separate themselves, to step away from God. You see, being close to God does something to us. It brings what's called conviction, right? If you're a stiff-necked people, if you're already rebellious by nature, and you have an opportunity that God speaks to you, and he's like, oh, man, this opportunity to hear directly from God, that can have two, one of two reactions. Either man, I want to be greater. I want to be better for God. I want to strive to do more. Or, you know what? I need to get some distance between me and him because this is very, very uncomfortable for me. And we know for a fact that these Israelites are rebellious by nature. It is their heart. If we're walking with God's people and allowing his word to speak to our hearts, then we will have one of two reactions. Either we will repent of our sin, we will get right with God, and we will endeavor to walk with him as we hear his voice. Or we'll pull away from God's people. We'll pull away from God. I'll avoid reading his word because we want to remain in our sin. We have all been in situations where we knew we were not right with God. And you think about getting up and going to church. Are you excited? <laughs> when you know you're wrong and you know you're out of the will of God, we are not drawn to church. You're not drawn to the word. When you know for a fact that you're walking in a way that's not pleasing to God, you're not going, man, you know what? I'm going to go read something that will convict me of my sin. No. You want to go hang out with your friends that are doing the same thing, right? Because if they're doing it, then it makes me feel better about doing it, right? That's the thing. Misery loves company. These people are not walking with God. You know what? There's a principle that says that those that are, not, that are not seeking God will not draw you closer to God. They will draw you away. And what happens is sometimes we surround ourselves with people that make ourselves feel better, and we avoid God. And what's happened to the Israelites is, guess what? They're staying together as a group. They're not disbanding. They're rebellious people. And what do they do? They all, as a group, pull away from God. They pull away from God. John 3, 19 through 21 says this, And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Okay? Deeds were evil. Check it out, verse number 20. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to light, lest his deeds should be reproved. This is why people don't read the word. 
This is why if you have a good Bible preaching church that's going to preach the truth from the word, and the Bible talks about that it's for reproof, it's for correction, right? It's supposed to direct us. There's a difference between teaching and preaching. Preaching is helping to people to correct their lives and preach truth to help to alter their behavior to get them to be more godly. Teaching is just educating you. And we look in the book and we look at what happens in the Laodicean church era, which is what we're in right now, which is where people have become lovers of their own selves. The Bible warns us and says that they will seek teachers with itching ears. We live in a culture today where people love to go to church, walk in the way exactly as they are, not get corrected, not get reproved, walk out the door exactly as they came in with more education, and they had an itch to scratch, and the teacher gave them an itch. Oh, yeah, okay. I feel like I got something from God. I can apply that in my life. They don't change. They don't learn. They're not convicted, and they walk out exactly as they are. That's what a majority of people are dealing with in churches today. The Bible is there specifically to help guide us to walk in the way that God wants us to walk, not to console us in the way that we're doing it ourselves. Verse number 21, but he that doeth truth cometh to the light. If you're doing the right things, guess what? You're drawn to the word. You want to be in church. You want to be around God's people. That his deeds may be made manifest that they are wrought in God reinforcing the fact that we know we're walking with him. We feel this sense of fellowship with God. As a child of God, we can try to run away from the accountability we have with God, but you will never escape ever because God pursues those whom he loves. That pursuit is called chastening, the word you'll see in the Bible. Chastening, that's God pursuing us. Hebrews 12, verses 6 through 8. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Son, meaning that person is a child of of God. This is reserved for the children of God. God does not chasten them. They're not his. If you endure chastening, God dealeth, dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? What kind of a father wouldn't excite, wouldn't pursue his son and try to get him to do better? This is a sal- This is for those that are saved. This is a chastening and God follows those people that are children of God. Verse number eight. But if ye be without chastisement, meaning God does not chasten you, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. The reason why God's not following you is guess what? You're not one of his. If you are God's child and you're living outside of his will, you will feel it because the indwelling Holy Spirit that lives inside you will weigh on your shoulders. You will feel the weight of doing wrong. If you can live in sin and have no chastisement whatsoever and you're not convicted of it, you cannot be God's because the indwelling Holy Spirit that lives within us does not fit, does not go with sin. Those two things are always going to be in opposition to one another. There'll be turmoil within us. Listen to how the Lord addresses the subject when he talks to them in Revelations 3. This is dealing with, as I said, the Laodicean church era. There's seven different churches that are talked about in the book of Revelations, and they're different eras of the church. The one we're in right now is the Laodicean church period. It's the last one. Listen to this in Revelations 3, 19 through 22. As many as I love, this is God speaking, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Repent means turn away from. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. God says, look, I'm trying to draw you back. I'm trying to draw you into this relationship with me. You've drifted away. You've stepped away like the Israelites. You're standing away from the mountain. And I'm calling you and by voice and I'm saying, look, come to me, come to me, come to me. I'm drawing you back to me. And if you open the door, I am there because you know what? I am knocking on your heart to him that overcometh that will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also ever came and am set down with my father in this throne, in his throne. Verse number 22, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the spirit saith unto the churches. The Lord 
wants to speak to his people. He's desiring for them to hear him. That's why he's speaking in his own voice. So they can't say, well, Moses said this, and Moses said this, and Moses might have misunderstood. No. God said, look, I want you to hear directly from me. The source, you're going to hear what the Ten Commandments are. God gave this incredible privilege to them to hear directly from him. He wants them to recognize their sin through the law, to turn from it, to repent, and desire to be close to him. See, because of his great love, he wants an intimate relationship with us. That's God's desire. He wants that closeness. I look at parents. I think about someone like Eric and Cadence. I think about Peter and, and, and Izzy and Sammy. And, 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 and so I look at the kids. I look at the moms and dads. And I look at the way they, that intimacy and that closeness. And the kids are like, you know, I, I, they, Eric and Kim live right across the street. So I see them all the time. And I watch Cadence and the way she looks at her dad. And the way that, man, I'm telling you, man, the sun rises and sets on him. And wherever he is, she's like, daddy, 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 right? And he said last night he couldn't sleep because guess who was sleeping all over him? King size bed, his wife's out of town, Cadence and him, and she's on top of him, right? <laughs> but isn't that such a beautiful thing? And that's what God wants for us. He doesn't use the term father by accident, yeah. right? It's because he is a parent to us, and he loves us, and he wants that intimacy. But with a child and a parent, what happens in the relationship when there becomes distance? It's not traditionally the parent becoming rebellious. Traditionally, it's the child, right? Mm -hmm. And so as his children, what happens is we can become rebellious, by nature. We see it in the Israelites. And guess what? The, the Israelites are a picture of you and I. He just wants us to have ears to hear him. He's talking to them. He's trying to get them to live for him. And he's just trying to reach out. As we continue, we will see. Verse 19. This is how they respond. And they said unto Moses, speak with, you speak thou with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. They request not to hear from God. This privilege of all privileges, we don't want to hear from God. We'd rather hear from a man. They want a mediator. They want a representative, right? Does this indicate the hearts of the Israelites a little bit? Yeah, it shows us where they are, right? And what happens, look at this. Moses said this, and understand, within 40 days, because God knows their hearts. Within 40 days, they're going to be dancing around a golden calf, mm -hmm. celebrating sin at the base of this same mountain. Mm -hmm. He knows who they are. He knows what they're getting ready to do. God understands this. Verse number 20, And Moses said unto the people, Fear not, for God has come to prove you that his fear may be made may, may be before your faces that ye sin not. Functioning as a mediator, what happens is Moses now comes to them and he's saying, look, let me explain to you why God is doing what he's doing. His desire for doing this, the reason for this, the purpose of this, exist, of this experience was not to scare them, but to give them an opportunity to see, to see and hear from God themselves, to have reverence for God. He's trying to allow them to stop thinking about themselves because they're always so driven upon what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to do this? What is us, 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 me, 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 the same we are in the world today. We live this life going, what about me? What about me? What about me? Someone wrongs us. Instead of worrying about forgiveness, we think about, what about me? What about me? Look how they wronged me. Because this is not, guess what? This world is not about us. This existence is not about us. If we sell ourselves that that is the bill of the bill of deals, it's, it's a lie. You know, this is not about self-esteem, self-awareness, you know, self-fulfillment, which is what the world tells us that it is. It's about denying yourself. Again and again and again, God gives that example. Deny yourself. Deny yourself. Live for me. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And guess what he says? And all these things. I will fulfill you. All the things you think you need and you're burning for, I'll take care of that stuff. But put me first. Right? 
What he's telling them is giving them a choice to stop living in their own, for their own glory and realize that they're supposed to live for his glory. God is testing these selfish people and giving them a chance to have fellowship with him, to sanctify, sanctify themselves from the things of the world. As born-again believers, guess what? God makes us the same offer every single day, every single day, every moment of the day. Because guess what? We get to make a choice in life. God gives us a free will. First, first John 1 John 1.9 says this, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's faithful and just. 2 Corinthians 7.1, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. And this last part, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. They were given the privilege of standing at the base of a mountain and hearing from a holy God speak directly into their human ears. And instead of being convicted of it and correcting their lives and working on their holiness, they rebel against God. They step away and they say, look, you know what? Why don't you talk to him for us? Because we don't want to hear what he has to say. Amazingly, God's desire is a close, loving relationship with his children. And let's see how the Israelites respond. Verse number 21. And the people stood afar off. And Moses drew unto the thick darkness where God was. So the people chose themselves over God. Does this sound like anyone we know? It's us. It's us. We do it all the time. Someone here might say, man, I choose God. I choose God. I choose God. But the question is, do we really choose God, right? Are we fully submitted to God's will over our own? Or are we fully submitted to God's will as long as it corresponds with our will? As long as it doesn't get me uncomfortable. doesn't make me step outside of what it is that I like question is this, what if God showed us that something or someone that we absolutely loved, right? And they made us feel happy and fulfilled. But what if he showed us that it was ungodly or that it was not his will? What if he revealed that to us and we knew it to be true? Would we be willing to take that thing or that person out of our life? Because that's when it comes down to the choice. Will I serve me or will I serve him? And that's the choice we make every single day, every single day. Matthew 16, 24 through 25 says this, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That means do what Jesus does. Verse 25, for whosoever will save his life shall lose it. He's saying, look, if you end up with the life that you think you want and you get it your way, guess what? You're in actuality losing the life that I'm offering you, which is a life to walk with me and a true joy. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. He says, look, if you'll lose what you think is important, you'll give it up and you'll allow me to use your life, you will get the life that you really are designed to have. I'll give you the greatest life ever. It's all about having God in his rightful place in our lives. If he's, a priority in our, if he's a priority, then our desires, right, our desire to fulfill ourselves should become secondary. And if that's the fact with us, if that's who we are, well, then denying our flesh should be pretty simple to do, shouldn't it? But is it? Who would agree it's not? Oh, my goodness. Everybody, if you're alive and you have a pulse, you agree. We fight the same fight against our flesh that they did. God gives us a chance to hear from him directly. Guess what? As Christians, we get a chance every single day. We live in a country where, guess what? We're freely allowed to have this Bible. 
We can hear directly from God himself in our own ears, in our own heart. God can speak directly to us. And what's really cool, check this out, is he even gives us a mediator for this, the Holy Spirit of God. That mediator that helps us to understand the word when we don't understand it. Clives and I were doing discipleship this week, and we were talking about, and it was that the whole study was about the Holy Spirit. And as we're sitting talking to him, I said, look, what's the difference? What's a big thing that you can really notice? He said, prior to getting saved, I would sit and read the Bible, and at the end of it, I was just frustrated, and, and, and I was just confused. And he said, but now I can sit down. He said, it's unbelievable how it's opened up to me. That's the mediator stepping in and going, let me show you this. Right? He's like, every time we sit down, he's like, I got a question about this. And, oh, you see this? And I'm like, yeah, man, awesome. You know, but it's a beautiful thing since the people won't go to God. Their mediator, Moses, now goes in the presence of God on their behalf. And what we'll see is the transition now where God's no longer going to speak to the people. Now he's going to speak through his man, Moses. Right. Their opportunity is passed. They failed. Verse number 22. And the Lord said unto Moses, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, ye have seen that I have talked with talked with you from heaven. God tells Moses to explain to the Israelites that they've had their chance. You see, God allowed them to decide for themselves as he does with us every day. With their free will, they decided to separate from God instead of getting closer. Hmm. How many of us can think through the course of our life when we've made similar choices? We've had a choice. God's tried to draw us closer. And we put our foot down and we go, I am not. I'm doing it my way. I'm doing it my way. And my question is, when you've done it your way, how has it worked out? doesn't ever work out. We sow to the flesh, the Bible says that the result is always one thing. It reaps corruption. 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 Destruction. Right? Destruction. God is a God of restoration. That is always what it is he's trying to do. Knowing the sinful hearts of the Israelites, guess what? God is going to go ahead, right? He knows what they're getting ready to do, and he's going to make provisions for them for restoration. Look at this. We're getting ready to go in verse number 23. What he's going to do is he's going to reiterate the first and the second commandments. You know why he does that? Because he knows what they're getting ready to do within 40 days. He knows where they're going to be dancing around. But also he knows their propensity and their desire to serve idols. We all have it within us. As human beings, we love to serve idols. We love it. We have American idols. Somebody's a famous on TV. What do we want to do? We want to get their autograph. We want to lift them up. We want to see them. We, want to, we idolize people. We idolize things, cars, whatever it is. So God knows it's our propensity. Verse number 23. Ye shall not make with me gods of silver, neither shall ye make unto you gods of gold. He just gave the Ten Commandments. This has just happened. This is literally right afterwards, and he reiterates that point, trying to help them. He's warning them and trying to choose the godly path, right? He's saying, look, just be aware that you guys have this weakness, and I'm trying to tell you, don't do it. Don't do it. But at the same time, patience of God, he's going to put a system of restoration in place, even while he knows they're going to fail. He sees, the, he sees their failure, yet he still loves them. Guess what? That's us. God sees our failure, and yet he still loves us. We fail all the time. I don't know about you guys. We talked about it last week. It's like, man, I, feel like I fail every day. Amen. Is anybody else in the club? Amen. Oh, my goodness. We try. We're doing our best, but we fail. We fail. But the good news is Romans 5, 8 says this, but God commendeth his love toward us. The word commendeth means proved. God proved his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, he says, while we were yet sinners, while you were in your sin, while you were in failure, while you were dropping the ball, Christ died for us. His love does not, it's not matter based upon what we do, not based upon who we are. The fact that he just loves us because we're his creation. He wants that relationship. The patience of God with humanity is absolutely astounding. 
It is amazing. Aren't we glad that God put that system of restoration in place for us as well? I think remember back in 1 John 1, 9, it says we confess our sins. That means to repent, to turn from those things that God wants us to do. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not some, but all. Because we go, can God forgive this? Yes. Fill in the blank. Whatever you want to write in that blank, God can forgive. God can forgive. And he will if we will repent. But we are to cleanse ourselves before God. Verse number 24. An altar of earth thou shalt make unto me, and shalt sacrifice thereon thy burnt offerings and thy peace offerings, thy, thy sheep and thine oxen. In all places where I record my name, I will come unto thee. And look at this last part. And I will bless thee. That altar is to deal with sin, to deal with sin. This is, the, this is the system that God's put in place to help them. God explains that when they do fail, that he's not going to give up on them. He's, in fact, instructing them on how they can make things right after they fail, right? He also promises, not only he says, look, if you'll do what I tell you, follow my instructions, I'm going to tell you how to build it. But if you'll do this, the desire that I have for you is that I want to bless you. I want to bless you. The heart of the Lord is evident as he promises blessings, even as they are atoning for their sinful acts. The heart of God is restoration. People want to portray God, especially the God of the Old Testament, as a God of destruction and anger and judgment. But guess what? The same Bible, the same God that you see in the Old Testament is exactly the same God that you see in the New Testament. He is exactly the same. He is a God of love and a God of forgiveness, but at the same time, guess what? A God of justice and a God of being, he's fair, man. He's fair. Malachi 3, 6, for I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. If I had changed, if I did change, guess what? I would have destroyed you, but I do not change. It's because of God's very consistency and unchanging nature that allows us to have any kind of hope. Because consider this. What if one day God said this was wrong, and the next day he changed his mind, and he said that it was right? What if he was constantly in flux? And we didn't know what was right and what was wrong. And everything was always topsy-turvy like it is in our society, right? We don't know what's going on. Him, her, she, it, I'm not sure. Just howdy. I mean, I don't, even, I don't know how to address people, right? It's amazing. This, everything is upside down. It's crazy. And what happens is God is consistent. Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Guess what? What was wrong 4,000 years ago is still wrong today. What was right 4,000 years ago is still right today. God has not changed his mind. And those things are still true. In order to help them deal with their sin, the Lord gives them very specific instructions on how to handle it and the way that is acceptable to him. Remember, his desire, what he said was, he wants to bless them. That's his desire. Verse 25. And if thou wilt make me an altar of stone, thou shalt not build it of hewn stone. For if thou lift up thy tool upon it, thou hast polluted it. Okay? So the Lord instructs them, right? He says, I do not want anything that's fashioned by human hands. I, don't want, I want you to build it out of stone, but if you build it out of stone, I want those stones to be complete as I made them, not the way that you want to change them. He does not want to have the influence of mankind on these stones, and there's a specific reason. God wants it unaltered so that it has no human influence. Because what he doesn't want to have is he doesn't want to have it to be by the imagination of man or by the will of man have this altar to be fashioned or formed. Because he says if you'll do that, it is polluted, polluted. Any time humanity adds to the work of God, guess what we do? We pollute it. Think about a river that's pristine and perfect in nature. Man shows up. What happens to the river? Polluted. It's no longer pure. It's no longer undefiled. It is now defiled and polluted. 
The influenced man always takes away from God's creation. That's why we do not add or take away from the Bible. Because guess what? The Bible is perfect. It's exactly as it is. That's why the warnings are in the book of Revelation is not to add or take away. Verse number 26. Neither shalt thou go up by steps unto, thy, unto mine altar, that thy nakedness be not discovered thereon. This altar should be a place of absolute humility. Absolute humility. Listening and following exactly what God says. There shouldn't be anyone who feels superior as they climb the steps to go to the altar. And no one that walks up the steps going, admiring the craftsmanship of the stonework that they did as they walk up to the altar. It's not about humanity. This is about God. This is about his holiness. He is holy. And guess what? We are anything but holy. We look at the law. What do we see in the law? We see us. We see how we break it. We see how, he, we, see how we fail. God looks at the law. And God sees what he established. But guess what? He sees something that he's never, ever broken. Not even in his human form did the Lord break the law. Hebrews 4.15. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. God is perfect, and we are not. Amen. Who has found, is that a revelation to anyone in here? <laughs> if you thought you were perfect, we need to talk after church. <laughs> Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have the same issue, man. We're all a bunch of screwballs. We're all a bunch of mess-ups. We're all a bunch of failures. We have a desire to do right, but we've dropped the ball. We drop the ball. We drop the ball. We make mistakes every single day, and God knows that about us. When we search our hearts and we see all of our failures, then we realize our need for a holy God who loves us. Like the Israelites, guess what? We need a mediator. We need a mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5 says this, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. We don't go to a man. We don't go to a place. We go to God himself. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. It was the pride that the Israelites had that caused this distance at the base of Mount Sinai. It was the pride that caused them to pull away because they did not want to face their rebellious nature. And guess what? It's exactly the same thing that puts distance between us and God today. It is our pride, our pride, our desire to be right, our desire to serve ourselves. Humility. Humility, as we talked about on Wednesday nights. If you're not involved in Wednesday nights, man, come, it's so good. We talked about the fact if your life is a mirror, if your life is a mirror and it's supposed to reflect, the more pride you have, the more it reflects an image of you. But the more humble you become, the image begins to look like Christ. Absolute humility is a reflection of Jesus because he made himself humble, right, as a servant. He didn't come as a king. He didn't come to dominate. He came as a lowly child in a dirty manger and lived a life washing the feet of others instead of saying, I deserve to have my feet washed. Place me on high. No, he walked where he went. The Bible says he had no place to lay his head. He didn't have any possessions. He came as humble as he possibly could as an example of who we are. And when you and I walk humble, guess what? We reflect him. That's what we're supposed to be. That's what a Christian is. Way back then, the Lord used a man named Moses to be the mediator for the children of God. Guess what? Today, he uses the man, Christ Jesus. If you need to get right with God because of sin, guess who you go through? Jesus. You need to surrender your will to the Father? Guess who you go through? Jesus. And guess what? If you want to become a child of God, you want to be saved, brought out of, out of the destruction of your past, 
forgiven of your sin and made to walk with God as one of his children can only go through one person, Jesus Christ. John 14, 6, we sang about in the song, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And here's the key. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Not through religion, not through church, not through a person, but through the man, Jesus Christ. I, no man, no man, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. There's only one way to God, and it's through his Son, the mediator. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for today, and we thank you, God, for the message you've given us, Father, showing us an image, Lord Jesus, of us, seeing ourselves separated from you, God. We have an opportunity to hear from you, yet we choose not to. We have an opportunity to surrender to you or let you, we rebel. God, we have a desire to serve ourselves, and we have an opportunity to serve you. And God, you have such a beautiful, abundant life prepared for us. God, if we just simply surrender to you. And God, I pray for any today that Lord say, you know what, maybe they're a Christian. And they say, you know what, I know I'm saved, but I know I'm not walking with God. I have things in my life, and I can see it right now as I think about it. As I think about facing God, and I think about standing in his presence, and I repel, I pull away. Because I'm fearful, just like the Israelites. Because I don't want to face God with the things that I'm allowing in my life. If that's the case, brother or sister, God, repent of it. Walk away from it. God is ready to forgive. Because remember, he wants to bless you. He wants to bless you. God wants to walk with you. That blessing is not material, but that blessing is an opportunity to walk with a God that loves you and feel the presence of a holy God in your life, seeking a righteous life, God, that will fill you in ways that you cannot even possibly imagine. And there's other here, others here. Say, you know what, you know, maybe I don't have necessarily a sin that's besetting me, but maybe my walk has just become stale. I've not pursued God like I need to. I've become lackadaisical and lazy. I've become Laodicean in the way that I look at God. And I think that he's here to serve me instead of realizing it's the exact opposite. Help me, Lord, to serve him. And then there's the other here. You say, you know what, I don't, I don't know God. I know about him. I, religiously, I know who he is. I've been through ceremonies. I've got knowledge of God, and it's wonderful to understand him. But understand that the devil himself and the demons, the Bible says, tremble in the presence of God. They don't doubt his existence. They don't doubt his power. They don't doubt who he is and what he can do. But they have never surrendered their will to him. You will not see demons in heaven. They will be in eternal hell because they do not bow their will to God. And until we bow our will to him, we will be religious, but we will be lost. We may believe, but we will simply face God one day, claiming that we thought we knew him. And he's going to say, away from me, for I never knew you because we didn't surrender our will. If you're here today and you've never done that, you've never surrendered your will to God, and you want to, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that today. It doesn't take a ceremony. It doesn't take special words. It's the heart. The Bible says, for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. We pray to God, not in a magical or mystical prayer. The prayer has nothing to do with it. It's the heart that God listens to. And if our heart is broken before him, and we want to receive him, he will come into us. Because I'm telling you, he stands at the door and knocks. He desires that relationship with you. It's a matter of you surrendering to him with their heads bowed and with their eyes closed. If you want to receive Christ as your Savior, I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray in your heart and in your mind. I'm not going to call you out. You can do this privately between you and him. It doesn't take anybody else but you guys. I'm going to guide you through the prayer. But it will not be the words. 
It will be the intention of your heart. And if you're sincere, one time and one time only will it take for God to, ch- to accept you and to make you his child. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Repeat after me in your heart and your mind if you want to receive Christ. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner and that I have failed in so many ways. I failed you. I failed people that I know. And I failed myself. And I'm sorry. I repent of my sin. And by faith, I call out to you today. I'm asking you to come into my heart to forgive me of my sins, to pay my sin debt, and save my soul. By faith, I'm trusting you, Lord, to be my Lord and Savior. Thank you for working in my heart today. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. I will see you in heaven one day. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.